This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. To another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're film women, women of the film. Femme du cinema. That's right. Uh yeah. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, I'm I'm contemplating in this current landscape of this world if my fierce Attachment to privacy is gone too far. What? Okay. What? Tell me more. <laughs> tell. Just tell well, me more. I kind of like how I navigate a pu- the public space online and in social media because I only have one thing. Like I only have Instagram. But so a friend was trying to send me a message on Instagram and they were not able to. And he was like, "Oh, he came over and he was like, oh, I can't." I can't send you a message because you're, like, too popular. And I was like, no, that's not it. It's not because I'm popular. He's like, you have a bunch of followers. I'm like, yeah, but that's not it. It's because I locked down my account so I cannot get messages from strangers. And he was like, oh, but then what? what's the point of being on social media if you're not talking to anyone? And I was like, mm, good point. Yeah, dude. <laughs> like, if I take the social out of social media, what's the fucking point? Uh, but yeah. Wait a minute. So me. you're not friends with him yet? Is that so? Because no. you obviously, if you were friends with him on social media, he would have been able to send you a message, right? Yeah. Well, we're friends now. Like, we follow each other now. Uh, at, a, at a certain point, yeah, I guess it is kind of like, if you do have social media that is forward-facing, right? Right. Then you kind of have to, like, deal with the fact that there are strangers that are going to access your stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you have a locked account and, you know, you only, like, let in people that you really know, then that's one thing. But I think that if it's public, there is sort of, like, okay, well, there is going to be something. You can't yeah. control it all. I mean, I have to admit, Mitt, I have friends who I have their full ass phone number. <laughs> like they, I've had their phone number for like 20 years and they still will only message me on social media. And I'm like, why? Like, just text me, you know? And then they'll, and then they'll send me a message through Facebook, which is like so asinine. It's like, I don't check Facebook ever. You know, I'm like, like, at least do the most popular one. At least do the, you know, Instagram <laughs> or something. Or I'll do a Twitter X blue sky like something listen i I, i'm gonna tell you a little secret i have gotten more dates off of twitter formerly twitter now x than i have on any dating actual dating app i believe that shit 
Yeah. I believe that shit because everyone can just see how brilliant and cool you are. Oh, and it's like so low stakes because you're like, I'm just going to slide into the DMs and it could work and it could not. You could ignore it if you want to. You can jump in if you want to. That does not surprise me at all. And, and, and at first I was like, this is weird, right? And then I'm like, actually, it's not weird because a dating profile is so set up for performance. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's not... Like, Twitter is raw as fuck. Like, it's, like, the worst of you. So... It's <laughs> <like>, raw! <laughs> Twitter is raw dog in life, where really the dating is. app is, like, a full prophylactic experience. Yeah. If you could love me at my Twitter, then we could date. Like, it, like on a dating profile, all it would be is just, like, LinkedIn. Just, like, a fucking... Facade, just like a fucking <laughs> joke. <laughs> like, what's something that no one knows about you? Mm-mm. Oh, I have this cute problem where I can't sleep unless I'm watching the Golden Girls. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow, what a secret. I have this actually leads into something else social media related, but like, I've noticed this uptick in um, people being like, I'm weird, and they're not. (laughs) Like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm so weird. I had like two pumpkin spice lattes today. And I'm like, that's not weird. Weird is like you sit at home by yourself for three days straight and start wondering if worms can replicate, like if every worm can replicate their body, if they cut in half, if you cut every worm you see in half, how, how soon would it be until you have a worm army. That's weird. <laughs> weird is not like, oh my God, I actually farted once like in front of my fucking partners. Like that's not weird. Yeah. I listen, I, I'm going to go back to Vanderpump fucking rules. Cause I, that's all I'm thinking about. It is my frame of reference right now. Cause I'm doing a rewatch. I'm in this season where <laughs> I guess Stassi Schroeder Decided that she was into murder. Yes. Remember? I remember that season. Yes. And she had like a murder-themed birthday party. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was a very branded season for her. And I was like, does she think that she's super weird because she likes murder? Cause I'll tell you, it ain't that weird. We should know. <laughs> Out of anybody. What's weird is. I had to prevent myself from committing a murder. Like, I was standing on a train track, so I wanted to push someone over. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's weird. That's very weird. And maybe let's talk about it, like, yeah. in like a professional I, capacity. I read Helter Skelter. Not weird. Not weird. Yeah, there are levels to the shit, and I feel like, you know, somebody like you, you've you've been around the block, you've seen a few things. And this is really what I feel, like, what really gets me is, like, I haven't had these feelings since I was in high school. When I was in high school and I was a senior and I'd been through the fucking bullying and everyone ragging on how I looked and like just sticking out like a sore thumb and not fitting in. And then all of a sudden the preppy people discovered grunge and started wearing fucking flannels to school. And I'll never forget this one woman named Shelly, this one girl named Shelly. And she was just like, I am like, alternative now and i'm like you live in a two million dollar house and you drive a bmw you're fucking not 
Oh, shell no. But I haven't had those feelings for so long. Like, I haven't had those feelings. for, And then I see all this stuff on Instagram. Like, I'm weird. And I'm having those high school feelings again. Let me tell you, bitch, it does not feel good. Yeah, I, I feel like there was maybe an entire five-episode arc very early on on our on our journey on this podcast where we talked about that shit, like calling out fake weirdos. Yes. Um, which seems to be a very Gen X pursuit, by the way. I totally understand. Okay, it's obnoxious as fuck. But <laughs> back in our day, it was a thing. It was an absolute fucking thing because rules were rules back then. If you were weird, you were not popular. If you were weird, you were not rich. If you were weird, you were like cast off behind a wall smoking fucking camel cigarettes with all the others. And never the two shall meet. You know what I'm saying? You're ostracized. And I think that's yeah. it. Like, it's, I don't I don't blame anyone who's at the beginning of their weird journey. Like, I don't judge you if you're at the beginning of your weird journey and you're figuring out like, oh, I like things that are different from what the general public likes. I support you fully. I, I draw umbrage at the, I did a very normal thing, but it's outside of what I consider normal. And now I think I'm weird to the world. It's all bullshit. Like, it's it's all bullshit that yeah. I'm even... But it just... I just have to address the fact that I felt it. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like that I feel it. I don't like that I'm judging people in this way or, like, feeling like I'm still a teenager in this way. It's just... Mm. I don't like it. Well, but, like, here's the thing. We are... At, we are moving towards this, like, new era of our lives where being actually weird can actually happen and it's scary as fuck (laughs) i'm still terrorized and traumatized to know that you are the weird garden lady (laughs) i cannot get over that fucking round of serial killer self-care i'm like here's weird sitting in the fucking corner by yourself at a party eating all the cheese yelling at people from your fucking car window and have it filling up your yard with tchotchkes (laughs) It's not having a pumpkin spice latte in August. Well, and it's not like I'm sitting here going, check out how weird I am, everybody. Exactly. You're checking it every day. Listen, I thought I was normal until you told me I was weird. And then I was like, holy fucking shit. I need to zip the lip. I can't talk about this in public, let alone a fucking podcast. And I'm like, oh, yeah. You got to talk about it much more. We got to work through this because I don't think it's weird. I think it's, that's the thing. That's hilarious to me that you're like, this is the normal trajectory of my life, but I'm reaching this point of middle age where things that I think are normal are actually weird. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, especially like I'm this like single woman, this single middle-aged woman that lives alone in an old country house. And I'm just like, okay, like, how do I make this? Cool. Like, like I don't want to scare anybody. Like, I want people to come over. I want, I want people to think that I'm not a murderer. Like, let's, you know, open it up a little bit. Like, I'm not sitting here going like, ew, I'm so cool because I'm no. fucked up and weird. And I got cinnamon brooms all over the house. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're a month out from Halloween. And every year I worry that people are going to be like, that's the fucking weirdo house. Yeah. Oh, God. We talked about this, too. It's so, we're so close. We're closer than ever. 
Like I'm out, I'm out here dragging my garbage cans out to the street with no fucking drawers, with no fucking pants on. Was, that is simply what I'm telling you. I'm simply telling you that like, there's a there's a switch from like being a young person that's like, I'm so weird, guys. Like, deal with it. To like, I'm normal, but everyone is telling me that I'm weird, and exactly. maybe I need to get like a check on exactly. it. <laughs> Like, don't co-opt the weird too early because it will come for you, I guess is my point. Like, you don't have to make an effort to be weird. It will come for you. It will come for all of yeah. us. Oh, oh, for sure. And like, it's so funny that you were talking about high school again because it's all I've been thinking about lately. Yeah, because uh, because of uh, of just like this information that I found out recently about a former teacher of mine from high school who... Is, has a three-part Hulu documentary about him. <laughs> so <laughs> Which, that has never happened to me before. I've never been, like, <laughs> all, like watching a true crime thing and, and been like, oh, I know that person. Yeah. Have you? No, and I dated an actual fucking murderer. I was like, where's his story? They didn't make a goddamn even frontline episode about him. Was it, was it, like, his name just, like, a simple letter or something like yeah, that? Yeah, his it was, like, name a was a letter. <laughs> and, like part of his first name is a letter he had two first names one was just a letter yes and he murdered his business partner and i met him at a taco bell when i was 18 and went on a date with a man in the city yeah not a single documentary moment has been given to him you had a teacher in high school a normal ass situation where you're a high schooler you have teachers and you now have a three-part documentary about this dude yeah it's it's so, it, like, I never expected that, to be honest. But then it really has just kind of, like, sent me, like, barreling back to just being, like, in high school in the 90s. And I went, I, I went and, like, looked at, like, I, I pulled this, like, Rubbermaid thing from under the bed that had, like, all these VHS tapes that I just had collected over the years <laughs> and went and found, like, all my old projects from that class <gasps> oh they are so dreadfully terrible like i'm just like <laughs> i mean i'll t- here's what i'll say because i will tell you that they're terrible i will say positively that i'm a good camera operator and there was some great shots in some of that shit they were nice. straight up tarantino reservoir dogs ripoffs like that's all it was that's all I did in that class was I feel I was just me and like 12 boys and we just ran around the school and they were like pretending to do the warehouse sequence from Reservoir Dogs. So on top of everything else, you're telling me he was a bad teacher? <laughs> yeah, I turned that in for a grade, apparently, and he was he was okay with that. But I to my defense, because I basically I directed it. I I edited it. I'm a terrible editor. Oh my God, I was so bad at editing. But then I was a good camera operator. There's some great shots in there. But beyond that, they're fucking awful. And I was so embarrassed. Like I was watching them alone. I hooked up the fucking VCR. I still have a VCR. I hooked it up to my TV. I was alone watching videos from high school being like, giving this like critical appraisal. Like I was like, oh, that was a terrible edit right there. Oh, that graphic bled for too long in the next scene. This is a, a violence that you are doing to yourself, like looking for reasons to denigrate yourself by going back to your high school projects. 
Oh, it was awful. But that's where I'm at. My head's in that place. And then that, it was, it also to, you know, to add to sort of what you've just said about high school weirdos, like, that was weird. Like, that class was absolutely filled with the most fucked up kids. Like, just were angry, bitter, suburban punk rock kids. Like, (laughs) unlovable. Nerdy as shit. I include myself in that, obviously. So, you know, I'm just saying that, like, yeah, I I don't know what weird is now. That's the only weird I know is from that. Yes. You know what I mean? And maybe that's the problem. Is like, my, maybe my, my weird meter is off because what I consider weird is no longer... is Maybe what I consider weird is truly out-of-bounds psychotic now. I don't know. Maybe it is weird to have, like, one... Th- hair askew during your day or to leave your house without makeup. I don't know. I I do believe that the the bar has been reset though because yes. because of I think the internet and just generally that kind of proliferation of alternative culture, you know, that kind of stuff in the 90s. That yeah, I don't think anyone is there's no separation between church yeah. and state anymore. You know that. It's like everyone is weird. Everyone likes cool things. But so to be truly weird these days feels like a feat. <laughs> I just still love, like, I just still love encountering a genuine weirdo, which is not me either. Like, I do too many things that are considered normal to be a genuine weirdo in most people's eyes. Mm. But I just love... Like, I follow a couple of um, older women on Instagram who are, like, really about their style and how to wear makeup and how to look good. And I love it. And it's great because they're, like, in their 60s or, you know, 70s, what have you. And it's always lovely to see that. But they're not weird and they're not pretending to be weird. I still want to follow and find the person who's, like, I am wearing my dead husband's glasses as a monocle and I am... Like, I love a genuine weirdo, like someone who's like, oh, everything I I am wearing, I found in a dumpster behind a Whole Foods. They don't even sell clothes there. I'm a miracle. Like, I just love that kind of shit. Yeah. You want to see that person putting an anti-chafing stick in between their thighs in the largest stage on Earth, the New York City streets. (laughs) (laughs) As long as the outfit's weird, I'll change it from from serial killer to self care. Yeah, so that outfit is crazy. When you're putting that anti-chafe stick on, we can talk. But. If it was like a a breakaway pant at the thigh, so un un like doing a couple snaps right at the like the big the ham hock part of your thigh, and then just like putting a <laughs> opening it up like a hot dog bun, and then just putting some anti-chafe ah! in there, and then just snapping it back into place. <laughs> Breakaway anti-chafe delivery device. <laughs> you said open it up like a hot dog bun. I would call the fucking cops so fast. Or maybe it's more like a baked potato. I would- like you're just opening the thigh meat part. Oh of the pants. god, I would. I would call the national guard. I don't even know how you do that. I think you have to be in the government to do that. I would find a way to call the national fucking guard. I'd call the UN. I'd be like, look, I'm on 2nd Avenue. <laughs> Here's my fucking cross street. Can you come and send somebody? Can you send a tank? Can you send a tank? <laughs> Someone just crack this open like a fucking hot dog bun. 
and started oiling up those thighs. <laughs> I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that the answer to this next question I'm about to ask you is no, but have you ever researched workouts for the inner thigh before? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. really? <laughs> I absolutely have. Because I've got that, like, that, like, loose meat. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. like, it's like, like, you know when your underarms, if you're wearing a tank top or a bra that's too tight and, like, your loose meat kind of comes out over your, in your underarm cracks? Of course. I've got that in my actual cracks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, how do I get rid of this loose meat in my crack? There's a there's a machine at the gym that you can use. It's, I think it's either called the an adductor. adductor or an abductor. Uh-huh. And it is basically the spread eag machine. <laughs> I hate that fucking machine. And that's the thing. If I I was looking up inner thigh workouts because I'm like, there has to be another way. I don't have to go to a building and spread my fucking junk out for all the world to see so I can get rid of this loose meat pocket. It's fucking yeah. hot pocket. Well, and that's the other thing is that all the other exercises involve opening your knees up like a <laughs> clam. There's like no decent way to exercise those those inner thighs. Like I don't know, everything looks filthy and gross. <laughs> I did find a home workout that I will send you and it does look filthy but you're by yourself in your in your home and you can just close the door. Oh, thank God. And you don't have to get weights or machines or anything. Like, somebody figured it out, and I think this woman should win a fucking Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) There's nothing I want more than, like, God, me in leggings trying to— And everyone knows why you're on that machine. Just, like, me in leggings trying to squeeze this loose meat into something that resembles a leg. (laughs) I fucking hate it. I got—my fucking crotch has jowls. Let's just say it. My crotch has jowls. (laughs) <laughs> it is the meanest part of middle age so far. My crotch has jowls. I'm at her looking like a fucking W.C. Fields. W.C. Fields. <laughs> W.C. Fields. You know how updated my references are? <laughs> the, the older, the better, as far as I'm concerned. You know me. Nobody has jowls to? anymore. You think Nicole Kidman has jowls? I wish. I wish somebody would have, have jowls so I could update my fucking references. No, they just get them, like, sucked out through a a meat straw at the dock. Like, and it's not even, like, a, they don't even have to go under for it now. It's, like, so easy oh, to yeah. not be old. They just slap ever. you once really hard, and they're like, you're ready to go. You're numb. <laughs> how do how we get from social media to crotch jowl? How do we get to WC Fields of crotches? I I. How did we get to W.C. Fields in a fucking headlock between my <laughs> legs? I don't know. We're going to have to find out when we edit, when we go back and listen, because I don't even know. I just know that that's where the spirit took us, and we went with it. It was beautiful. It's like a kite on the breeze. Let's <laughs> talk <laughs> about these fucking movies. Let's talk about these fucking movies before we go even worse. We do have a theme this week, by the way, which I think is actually pretty fucking good. I don't know oh, what you think. I agree that it's pretty fucking good, but now all I'm thinking about is how do we have a theme that's W.C. Fields in a crotch lock? <laughs> we, if anybody can do it, we can. <laughs> yeah, for sure. A challenge accepted. Challenge given. Challenge accepted. Yeah. Give, me, give me at least a weekend to think about it. <laughs> 
I'll have something for you on Monday morning. <laughs> oh, I love this fucking theme. Yep. I think it's a, another tag team. You came up with the theme. I just kind of finessed it. Yes. Our theme this week is ass, gas, or grass. Nobody rides for free. We're doing movies about bad road trips. <laughs> Nobody rides for free. <laughs> you, you got a choice. One of three. I I love that phrase, by the way. It'll, it'll never be old for me. <laughs> that, that phrase to me is the epitome of like a late 60s, early 70s vibe. Oh, 100%. Especially grass. It's like, that is such a old term. In fact, it made, like your movie this week made me think of it again. So is ass. Like, can you imagine <laughs> saying to someone like, all right, thanks for driving with me. Like, I'm glad I picked you up to take you to this party. Give me some ass. Give me some ass. <laughs> or some grass. My dude. Bad road trips. We've done... We've done road trips before on the pod. This yeah. one w- is like a bad one. We're we're looking at like dark road trips, bad road trips. I saw the last time I saw your film was God, I don't even know, maybe like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, same. And then I of course was like I just became obsessed with I have the um it's this criterion box set called America Lost and Found, the BBS story, and it has um your movie. On it. Nice. And there's a ton of special features. I had to watch every single one. I was like, oh my God, I'm I'm like down a rabbit hole of information about your movie. And um it was good to see it again, actually, because I hadn't seen it obviously in a long time. Same. And, um, I really, really loved it. And it's I don't know, it's one of those rewatches that it doesn't necessarily hit different, but I noticed different things, and that was kind of a a nice rediscovery. But I had never seen your movie, so your movie was completely top to bottom shocking for me. Wow. That's yes. Like, oh my God, I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Well, you're going first. I am. I am. So, um, my movie for the theme, ass, gas, or grass, (laughs) bad road trips is from 1992. It was written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson. It was directed by Carl Franklin, and it's called One False Move. After 10 years of busting people, Toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. Now, did this movie come out after Sling Blade? Before, right? But Sling, wow. Sling Blade was like 96? Because I'd never heard of it, so I'm like, how did I miss this? Yeah, it... That is, like, I think part of what I really love about the movie, ultimately, is that it feels like a gem. It's just a hidden gem. And I think that it, to be honest, I think it had kind of come back semi-recently to sort of like a more, I don't know, cinephile movie consciousness because Criterion put out both Devil in a Blue Dress, which is the other Carl Franklin movie um, that we've talked about on the podcast, and this movie, I think they came out within, if not at the same time, then within like a couple months of each other. And I think obviously Devil in a Blue Dress is a a little bit more well-known than this one. And so I think a lot of people were kind of discovering this for the first time. But like we said, this is the second film. We've talked about Devil in a Blue Dress before on a Black History Month episode when we talked about Denzel Washington, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and this is another film by Carl Franklin. He 
grew up in California, got his MFA at the the AFI, um, but then he kind of started his career in Hollywood as an actor. And he did a lot of television, but then eventually he came back around to start directing. And guess who he directed movies for? Just take one fucking guess. Listen, it's going to be Roger (laughs) Corman because my movie also is connected to fucking Roger Corman because the man is single-handedly responsible for all of cinema. I am just throwing that out there. Uh, I agree. Like, I love Roger Corman and I know a lot about him, but I am actually shocked by how many movies we've talked about on this podcast that have him involved in some way. It's influential or somehow involved. Like it's it's truly amazing. Yes. So he so Carl Franklin did movies for Roger Corman at one point. So the screenplay for One False Move, okay, it was obviously co-written by Tom Epperson and a very famous person, Billy Bob Thornton. They were childhood friends from Arkansas. Billy Bob was a musician, Tom was a novelist, and they were young. They kind of decided to to move, you know, back and forth between L.A. and New York for a while, trying to get careers started. Um, And then they actually came back to Arkansas at one point because they both were like, we couldn't make it, so we're going home. But then they decided to go back and try to write a screenplay together. And they eventually came up with One False Move, I have to say, this is like a very funny piece of trivia for me, is that initially this screenplay was called Color Me Bad. No, it was not. Yes. How dare they at the height of I want to <laughs> sex you up. Ah, uh, TikTok, get on. Stop, stop, stop. I want to believe that their screenplay predated the band, but that's too... They would have had to change that name anyway. Oh, that's and a horrible name. When that band name. came around, they'd be like, change the name of the movie. That's also, a, it's a bad name for a band. It's a horrible name for a film. Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree. I'm glad, I'm glad they, they changed, changed it. it. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Jinx and for fucking sure. Yeah. The band never made sense to me. I'm like, color you what? Yeah. Huh? I know. And I just can't believe that I was so young <laughs> singing about sex like that in the car with my parents. Oh, it was not just singing about sex. It was like the raunchiest reenactment of sex singing possible. Yeah. And they just played it on 95.5 WPLJ like it was no big fucking deal. Yeah, there was that like one part in the middle where the guy with the deepest voice starts talking. (laughs) He's like, Ah! don't say anything. Like, what? (laughs) My mom is like, screech! Oh We're in a God. ditch now. I like the guy who looked like Snow in Fama. You know, see how you snow me out of play. <laughs> and I'm like, is he in both bands? Is he Snow and in Color Me Bad? There were like two guys that looked like Snow in that band. And then one guy that looked like Michael Bolton. <laughs> or Kenny G. Kenny G. Look, I'm just saying, it took a long time for America to get boy bands together, to get their shit together. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing after the 50s and 60s, the height of yeah. the doo-wop, it took us a long time to recalibrate. That's right. Rest in peace, Color Me Bad. I don't know what you're doing now, but... They are TikToking. you don't stop in, in heaven. <laughs> we hope. Um, so here's another thing that I think is really interesting about One False Move, related to music, perhaps. This movie was one of the handful of movies that was released by 
the movie slash media division of IRS Records, which you will know that name if you love the band R.E.M. like I do, mm-hmm. or if you like 80s music, right? And it's fascinating to me because part of me wonders if that's the reason why this movie is more unknown than it should be is because it was, like, released by this music company that had, like, a, you know, weird uh, media division and then went out of business type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Letterboxd and somebody had compiled all of the films that IRS Media released. And it was about, like, 40 movies or so. And the only two I'd seen before were One False Move and Shakes the Clown. What? Starring... Bobcat Goldthwait and Julie Brown, as you know. Okay, but what, uh, maybe an unknown or lesser known production company, but what a roster. I Just know, with those I couldn't two. believe it. <laughs> like, holy shit. I know. I know, I was like, what a deep rabbit hole to fall into, watching all of the IRS media movies one day. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. But Yeah, because I saw the IRS media logo and I was like, wait a minute, I've only ever seen that on music. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of cool. Nice. Um, so... Uh, I won't do a traditional one-sentence synopsis. I'll just kind of give an overview of it. So One False Move is centered around a pair of ex-cons, Ray, who is played by Billy Bob Thornton, and Pluto, who is played by Michael Beach. And Ray's girlfriend is also generally along for the ride. She is played by Cinda Williams, and her name is Lila Walker, but people call her Fantasia. So this kind of trio of folks. They're all living in California. At the beginning of the movie, Ray and Pluto commit, like, a pretty disturbingly violent crime. And it's obviously involving drugs. And it's kind of, like, jarring to begin a movie, to be honest. It really kind of kicks up the intensity pretty quickly. I don't and know it really forces uh, oh like it forces you to sit up and pay attention because I was like did I miss something like what is happening why are these people being terrorized yeah totally and um and so because of that they're kind of forced to leave town right and Fantasia wants to go back to her hometown in rural Arkansas this place called Star City and there's many reasons for that that get rolled out as the movie progresses, but that's what kind of sets up this road trip for our theme, right? Mm -hmm. Is that there's like three people traveling from LA to Arkansas um, and they're kind of, you know, on the move. They're, they're criminals. And so then at the same time, you've got this pair of these like LAPD detectives named McFeely and Dud Cole his name is Dud Cole. It's a very um, David Lynchian name, if you ask me. <laughs> but so there's these two detectives. They try to head them off in Star City. So they travel out to Arkansas, too. When they get there, they're pretty much quickly introduced to the chief of police, and his name is Dale Hurricane Dixon. And he's played by Bill Paxton, who we love. Ugh. Gone too soon. Rest in peace, King. <laughs> R.I.P. King, for sure. And Hurricane is so excited because he's like, 
finally, something's happening. Some real police work. Because there's these fancy cops from L.A. There's this, like, very violent crime that they're trying to solve. And that's kind of the setup of the film, is that you've got these three, you know, convicts who are on a road trip across America, and then these L.A. police that are waiting in Arkansas for them to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the thing. The immediately obvious thing for me when you watch this film is that it's very much about the professional and personal relationships between Black people and white people. Yes. Right? And the conversation is happening all throughout the film, and it's very complex at times. It's it's a lot of gray area many mm-hmm. times. And it's, you know, I'm not sure if it's because, you know, the movie was written by white men and directed by a black man. I don't know, but it's a huge reason why I like this film so much. I think it's unique in that way. Because, for example, Ray is white, Pluto is black, right? Mm-hmm. And during their road trip, cross-country, Ray is established as the one who's this very hothead. Like, he's got a crazy mullet. He's ready to pop off at any fucking time. Meanwhile, Pluto is, like, definitely the more rational one. But he also has this very calm demeanor, and it's kind of like the demeanor of a psychopath, if you know what I mean. He has a very calm demeanor, but he's the most vicious killer of the two. Yes. He's well-educated, he has a high IQ, which is stuff that they discuss at the beginning of the film. And that, to me, I think, is probably a deviation from any kind of thing that we'd seen before in action crime films, which you usually have, you know, the black guy as the hothead and the white guy as the kind of steady, calm, and cool one, right? So there's this inversion happening where... Pluto is very intelligent. Ray is kind of this redneck type, you know? And I think for 92, that was kind of an interesting move, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And then the other interesting part that you find out is that Fantasia is actually mixed race. She's half black and half white. And there's this moment that happens in the film where she actually talks about growing up in Arkansas as a biracial woman. And she talks about it in these very plain, sort of grim terms. And it stirred me very much, I have to say. Yeah. I was really, I rewound that part and I wrote it down. Like, it was really, it was very poignant and incredibly wry, I want to say. Just like the, the, you think, basically what she's saying is you think you can treat me one way because I'm a woman and another way because I'm black. Like it's like, it's really poignant in that scene. I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the best lines of the film, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I think smartly the film starts to kind of bring her story to the forefront because in a way you are like the thing about Fantasia's character is that like, you know, at the beginning of the film, like she's not, participating in the murders. You know, she's like the girlfriend of one of the cons. So it's that thing where you're kind of going, she seems to be a decent person. Why is she even affiliated with Ray and Pluto kind of thing? Right. And, you know, obviously I think the quick answer to that is that cocaine is why. (laughs) (laughs) Like, 
<laughs> for most you 80s, know. late late 80s, early 90s movies, cocaine, cocaine. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any experience with doing cocaine, but I know lots of people who did and do, and it always brings the strangest groups of people together, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as her story kind of unfolds, and especially when sh- they are in Ar- Arkansas, when they, when they make it to Arkansas, or at least she makes it to Arkansas, you sort of wonder if these issues of her race and her identity are playing into these, like, life decisions that she's made, you know? And as a character, she's very interesting and very complex. And, you know, like, I grew up biracial in the South, and I had, I mean, obviously not, I, I did not have the experience that she had, obviously. But in this very simple way, I felt like I could kind of understand because I don't know, you grow up in the South and it's it's kind of shocking how little people understand you when you're mixed race. They're just like they don't, I guess, have the language or the nuance to understand really? it sometimes. And that goes for pretty much anybody different, really. Right. And I think that's changed over the years, but there's I mean, back in at least the nineties, <laughs> when I was, you know. Wasn't that long ago. That's what's so weird. It's like that was not a long time ago that you experienced such strangeness or were treated differently for being biracial like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, it is like a, you know, a moment where you, you, you know, you do wonder sometimes if people treat you in certain ways because of one th- component of who you are versus, you know. So anyway, you know, I think, Fantasia, for me, is a very interesting character. Probably my favorite in the film, to be honest. She but, has such a good arc. Like, I just, I really do yeah. love, like, I I really, I looked up Cinda Williams because I'm like, ooh, she's kind of got an interesting look and she's got an interesting approach. But I like the arc of her being kind of a throwaway character or what you think is not an integral part of the gang or the, this group. And then she becomes the most important yeah. in so many ways. I I loved it. Yeah, to a hundred percent. I'm glad, but you know, the three of them being out on the road in America is definitely giving people pause. I mean, there's this very tense scene where they are stopped by a Texas state trooper, which I feel like in both these movies that could be another theme. Is like bad things happen in Texas when he gets stopped by the police. It's <laughs> <laughs> but- a casual theme. <laughs> Yeah, just a casual <laughs> secondary theme. But, you know, everybody is freaking out. And, I mean, especially Ray. Ray's about to fucking lose his shit. <laughs> and, you know, Pluto is the one who really has to talk everybody into calming down. And when you think about it, I mean, this movie was released the same year that the Rodney King riots happened. And then you have this moment where it's, again, like another example of the relationship between Black men and police, you know? So it's very current, you know, mm-hmm. this scene, for sure. But then, you know, you have these detectives, too, right? These two L.A. detectives, one of whom is white, one of whom is Black, you know? Dud is white, and McFeely is Black. And when they get to Star City, both of them find themselves kind of amused with Hurricane, right? The Bill right. Paxton character. Because he's very, he's one of these very stereotypically earnest people from a rural place, right? Like, he is so happy to be hanging out with some dudes from L.A. 
You know, he talks about how he never sees any action there. Like, he hasn't pulled his gun once in the six years that he's been on the force in Star City. And, you know, he sort of handles the the business of the town on a more personal level. And, like, one point, like, one of the townspeople is hungover and he's, like, menacing his poor wife, like, to let him in or something. And Hurricane just, like, wrestles this axe out of his hand. Because I guess the guy's going to go full-on fucking Jack Torrance on his house, at his own house. <laughs> and Hurricane's like, how about we don't do that? And he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's like, just go sleep it off, Bill, or whatever the fuck his name was. I was like, wow. That's how they handle it back in Star City. Hurricane, and, he's, like, he's like a puppy. He has such puppy energy. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, another, like, again, interesting racial conversation that happens during their interactions with Hurricane is that Hurricane has he slips racial slurs out of his mouth sometimes with McFeely standing right in front of him. And his wife tells the the police officers like, sorry, it's an old habit from childhood, you know? And you're just like, wow. Okay. And like, again, like growing up in the South, I remember kids doing that once in a while when I was in middle school and high school. And I mean, it was just kind of like, a wow moment, you know what I mean? Did you did you feel like like they felt like they were kind of on their best behavior when you were around? So that because that was something they would normally have said more, or was it really like just a slip? <laughs> Hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it was it was not just racial stuff too. I mean, it was like you know the f word and things like that. You know, Man. where you're just like. I don't know. And it's, it, and in that moment for me, I was like, damn, that is, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that, right? It's just, yeah. it's hard. It's just hard to hear. And, you know, I don't know. It was, for me, it was that, that moment where I was like, oh, damn, Hurricane, what the fuck? Yeah. But, but here's the thing about it, and again, this is why the movie is so textured. In spite of all this, McFeely and Dud still managed to find something charming about Star City. And there was just like one night that the three of them are, like, drinking Coors and Bushmills on the porch, and they're smoking cigarettes, and the cops are drunk, and they're like, wow, it's so beautiful here, and it's like, you got your house and your family, and it's like this great food, and it's like, they're just having a great Southern night, you know? And you're just kind of like, wow, this is very interesting. And, you know, Hurricane really admires them. He wants to be them. And there's this, this, my favorite scene in the whole movie, which is like, you know, seems like a, like a, brief moment, but to me, I think, I don't know why I like it so much, but McFeely and Dud are, like, having lunch at the local diner, and Hurricane walks in, and he overhears the two of them making fun of him. That is a heartbreak. It's such a little kid moment. Oh, my God. Where you would never expect as an adult to hear your contemporaries, like, making fun of you for wanting, thinking you can go and join the LAPD. Yeah. Oh, what a heartbreaking moment. I know. And then, like, I mean, Bill Paxton is such a good actor for being able to communicate that. It's like a core wound, right? It's like a a wound of, like, oh, my gosh, I'm embarrassed. And then he tries to buy a candy bar. Like, he pretends to buy a candy bar. And I'm like, God damn, like, so painful, you know? He was such a good actor. His face conveyed so much emotion. I know. He was so good. And then, you know, I'm sitting there in this scene going... How am I feeling sorry for this character who literally just said the N-word in the previous yes. scene? Like, 
And that, I feel like, is the movie in a nutshell. It's just very nuanced, very interesting. Having a conversation about race in this era where things were very racially charged, early 90s. And, you know, and and then just as a neo-noir film, it's so tense. Mm -hmm. The ending, I, I would never give the ending away. It's so shocking to me. And just sort of like, it's just sort of, the whole movie plays out in like such a kind of skillful, dramatic way and I just think it it has a lot to do with Carl Franklin as a director. He's just so yes. good at it. And I think Billy Bob and his collaborator wrote an amazing script. I mean, it just all kind of comes together. And I just, I love it. And it is a fucking haunted road trip across America in the same way that it yours is. It's just this feeling of America in 1992, you know, and just that feeling of, yeah, getting stopped by police and having to contend with, like, people in this, like, crime world. Anyway, it's it's a fave of mine. It's so, I, I, again, cannot believe I'd never seen it before. I'm so glad I did. Um, okay. And it has that 90s feel of a movie that you didn't know what was coming next and it was still riveting, Um which is, you know, a rarity now, I think, but it's mm. always welcome for me. And I think that it was just such a great cast, such great writing, incredible directing, yeah. and really talking about, you know, kind of the, the how do you keep getting by and getting on in heightened racial situations, but also how do you keep getting by and getting on when you're working with stone-cold murderers? And, like, yep. race is a factor there, too, but it's... It was fascinating. I loved loved this movie. I was really glad you picked it. Oh, I'm so happy. It makes me happy when you're into the movie as much as I'm into the movies that you pick. Like, when we have those moments where I'm like, I love this movie! Thanks for picking it. It just completely, feels good. Completely. Completely. And, and again, a totally different tinge to a road trip than we're used to seeing. So I also yeah. appreciated that as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I gotta say, I think your film is the quintessential road trip movie totally oh we are gonna talk about it because yes. uh, my movie was released in 1969 it was written by peter fonda dennis hopper and terry southern and directed by dennis hopper my movie is easy writer no man this is grass you mean marijuana i got you nature's child <laughs> We were born, born to be wild. Let me let me ask you: Is yeah, you're pumping the motorcycle hands, <laughs> baby? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that song? I mean, that song can go to hell. It's so bad. <laughs> I'm so happy you said that. I was like, that song is trash. God damn, I hate that song. That is a fucking brass monkey of a song. That song can go to hell. I don't yeah, even know what I I'm don't... talking about anymore. Brass monkey of a song. I'm making shit up to talk about how bad that song is. I got it, girl. I got. I understood the <laughs> reference completely. No, I. I was like, is there a more fucking boomer nightmare song than "Born to Be Wild"? Heavy metal thunder could not be I less know. heavy metal. Could not be less heavy metal. I like tried. smoking lightning. Do you? <laughs> Gross. It's bad, and it's unfortunate, especially because this film has a great soundtrack. Actually, there's a lot of good songs in it. That that is oh, the 100%. one that like outlived the rest to become the the emblem yes. of this movie is also a travesty. 
I know. They should have put that fucking Jimi Hendrix song at the beginning. That yes. song rules. Yes. Bury like the fucking... Born to be Wild song. Ew. They've got a fucking Grateful Dead song on there. they got all kinds of shit on there. It's great. Yeah. But I will say about Easy Rider, I'm going to give you a one sentence and then we're going to get into some history. Two long-haired hippies set out on a road trip from Los Angeles to, to New Orleans, encountering all of the beauty and madness that America has to offer in 1969. Perfection. So Peter Fonda is Jane Fonda's younger brother and Bridget Fonda's dad. Mm-hmm. Um he was born in New York, and his mother died by suicide when he was 10. And I think Jane Fonda was like 13. And on his 11th birthday, Peter Fonda accidentally shot himself in the stomach and nearly died. What? Which I did not know. And he kind I of. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I watched so many interviews. And in some interviews, like in certain interviews, he's like, yeah, because people questioned, like, you know, it was a year after your mother died by suicide. Was it a, was an attempt on your life? And he said, no, like if it was, I would have done it in a much more like I need attention kind of way, like shooting my hand or something. He's like, this was truly an accident. Wow. But, yeah, I nearly died when he was 11. That is wild. I did. I had no idea. No yeah. Idea. And he was born into this, you know, dynastic family of, of actors. And his father was, when he was younger, obviously already an established actor his sister was well on her way to becoming much more famous and well-known than he was or would be. And he kind of, you know, I watched an interview with the AFI, the American Film Institute from 1999, where he was talking about why he and Dennis Hopper and Terry Southern wrote this movie. And I'm going to paraphrase here because he said, you know, we had our own clothes in 19, in the 1960s. Like we had our own clothes, we had our own music, we had our own art, we had our own poetry, our own books our own lifestyle, but we did not have our own movie. Mm. So they basically were trying to talk to an audience that had never been addressed. And Dennis Hopper in that same interview said they made all of their money back in one theater in New York in one week. So it was a good, you know, a a good experiment for them. It paid off well. Um, But they saw something in looking at the counterculture of America that was so prescient and so so prevalent in their lives that wasn't being addressed in a way that they thought was was honest or real. So they that's what they set set out to do with this film. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, like, if you think about the I mean, God, this was such an an era for like corny acid Hollywood movies that came out, like, Mm -hmm. during this time, like, Hollywood just trying to, like, get into the counterculture some, and then there was just, like, Jackie Gleason is accidentally on LSD, and, you know, like, (laughs) you think about, like, just this idea of, like, these over-bloated Hollywood movies, and then this comes in like a fucking gunshot, like, absolutely amazing. And he had his own experience with that through a certain director named Roger Corman. That's right. <laughs> in 1967, uh, in 1967, Roger Corman uh, directed a movie called The Trip mm-hmm. from, and I quote from, this is from The Guardian um, obituary for Peter Fonda, Peter Fonda, from an up-and-coming actor, Jack Nicholson. So Jack Nicholson wrote a script called The Trip that Roger Corman directed mm-hmm. alongside Bruce Dern, Dennis Hopper, and Susan Strasberg, 
Mr. Fonda starred as a mild-mannered television commercial director who uses LSD for the first time and makes the most of it. So this came out two years before Easy Rider. Right. Yeah, that's a wild movie. I've never seen I want to see it after reading this. I've never seen it. But I was like, again, Roger Corman connection. Jack Nicholson wrote it. Like, it was Mm -hmm. very countercultural. But from that perspective that you just talked about, which is, you know, isn't it weird that this corny older guy is trying drugs for the first time? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, like, that's the thing, is that, like, all of of those movies, like, anything that was involving... Because you think about, like, you know, and that's part of, I think, what the box set, the Criterion box set, the... um, BBS box set is about mm. is that they were the people that came in and just blew like a puff of fresh air into all this Hollywood bullshit, right? Like right. Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, you know, th- these directors like Bogdanovich and like, you know, anybody that was kind of associated with this whole crew. I mean, they were kind of like making all these movies that were like not, you know, whatever the Carol Channing you know, on acid movie or whatever, you know, they were like doing the actual shit that was happening in the counterculture. And that's, yeah. I mean, this is like the daddy of them all, this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I I think that, I I don't know when the first time was that you encountered this film, but I didn't watch it as a younger person. I watched it for the Mm -hmm. first time in my twenties. Because I always felt like it had this vibe of like, isn't it like, it kind of had this vibe of like the parody of what the 1960s became, which is like, isn't it just so cool to like drop fucking acid, man? Yeah. So I didn't see it much until much later in my life. But when I did, I finally realized much like when we were talking about Amelie, oh, this is where all of those stereotypes were born. It's like from things like this that were actually very earnest and explicit in their attempt to explain something real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it totally became, probably became something that they would have hated at a certain point as it became just like this, you know, um, they were like the Nirvana of counterculture movies or something that just got too big. And then it was like, now everything needs to be easy rider. Like we got to yes. make the new easy rider guys. And you're just like, Oh my God. You know? And then it just, yeah. And it can't be replicated. Yeah. And that's why we hate born to be wild because yes. of this, the shit that happened after, you know, this movie became so popular. So, and in a weird right. way, maybe I'm forcing this, but in a weird way, I think this ties back to what we were talking about in the beginning. The born to be wild of it and the motorcycle, like with the American flag on it, that's what made all of your granddads who were like accountants in Ohio get motorcycles. They weren't <laughs> weird. They wanted to be cool. So they went and bought motorcycles because of this fucking movie and this fucking song. Yeah. And they... Fucked with the definition of what it was to be an outlaw and to be weird and to be a biker and all that shit. Yeah. That's where we get these, like, weekend biker things from. Yep. I don't need the bikers coming after me. I'm just saying. Listen, we love you, bikers. I love a biker. I'm just saying. Never say anything bad about a biker. So the movie, so again, like, this movie just kind of reminded me in this rewatch that there is something pure that happens that then people try to capitalize on and that's what ruins it. It's not the original thing that ruins it. Yeah. So I'm kind of happy to always go back and revisit these films and kind of realize, oh, this wasn't the parody that it became in certain ways. It actually was saying something real. And I kind of, I, it kind of moved for me out of this like dude bro space and into something that was more, of a conversation about America and what it has been and what it has become 
Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was kind of fascinating as well. Like they were very, they had a real eye on, and there. I think there's even a point where Peter Fonda's character says in the movie, like, if we don't look at who we are, uh, we're going to kind of ruin the American experiment. Like we're going to ruin America. Um, yeah. So to look at a point, look to look at this movie from the from the point of view of like, oh, the counterculture that was trying to save America from itself was also very interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely, I have gone through so many iterations of feelings about this movie, because when I first saw it, you know, I saw it much later in life, right? Maybe college, maybe 25 or something. And it was like this movie that I knew was such a landmark film. And then when I watched it, I was like, this seems kind of corny. I don't know, kind of like mm-hmm. dad stuff. And then I watched it again at a certain point, like in grad school or something. I don't know. But it was like a different feeling. And then this time I watched it and I just had like the same thing that you've just said. Like I just was like, oh, it's really kind of making a big statement about America and about freedom and personal freedom and, 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 and being, you know, different than the kind of status quo type of stuff, which is... I think the original point of the film. And I was like, oh, I finally, it finally took me long enough. I finally got I, it. I finally got it. Maybe it's because I didn't do acid before that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's because yeah. I've never done acid. I didn't get it. But yeah, it, yeah. It definitely. I'm, I'm, it's interesting to me. I'm glad it hit you in the same way this time. Cause I was thinking like, where have I been? Why did I miss all of this? But I got so caught up in the cultural conversation about it that I really never saw the movie for what it actually was. So I'm glad yeah. to have a, well, a rewatch. And I think because the ball has been, pushed so further downfield now than it was when we were in college, right? Mm. Like, when we were in college, like, it was, you know, I I think culturally there was a lot of people my age in college that were still kind of obsessed with, like, 60s and 70s stuff, so maybe it was just more, I don't know, just more kind of on the brain for certain people, but then I feel like now... I mean, what do kids think of Easy Rider? Is it like fucking Mozart to them? Is it so old that they're <laughs> ah! like, what is this artifact? <laughs> is it fucking Mozart? <laughs> is like, that a goddamn harpsichord? The fuck? <laughs> they're like, this is from a cave. Like, well, I don't know where this is. This is ancient history. So it's another, yeah. I mean, it's another reason to watch movies over again. Different Completely. times of your life. And this one is a great one to rewatch, I got to say. But we've got a stunning cast of of characters. Uh, Peter Fonda plays Wyatt. Dennis Hopper is Billy. A bunch of people flo- float into and out of their lives in this film, including but not limited to Karen Black and Tony Basil and, and Jack Nicholson. Yes. Um, but it's really about Billy and Wyatt. And they are on this fucking road trip from L.A., And I will say that Billy, the Dennis Hopper character, is a bit more high-strung, even though he's rocked out of his gourd nine times out of ten. He's still (laughs) very high-strung about it. Whereas Wyatt is a more gentle and peaceful approach to life, and he's kind of in the the Captain America garb of, like, you know, the the American flag uh, gas tank and the American flag jacket. And, like, he's really out there kind of with his long hair and his cool glasses, like— promoting this notion that he too is America, like that kind of idea. Then this movie starts with a very messy Coke deal. Messy because like they, I've never done Coke, but like it was all over their faces. And I don't think that's how you're supposed to do it. 
Like it wow, was in they, the mustache. These two movies also deal with coke. Yeah. Maybe that wow. could have been a theme. Like, learn how to do coke. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> coke deals across America. <laughs> and then they, you know, they kind of do this deal and then they put their money in a plastic tube uh, with a cork in it. And then they put the plastic tube in the gas tank for, uh, in Wyatt's bike and they're headed for Mardi Gras. But that's like all their money, all their shit that they have to live on. And so when they pick up a hitchhiker, Billy is really high strung about it. You know, he's like, you know, that guy could, he's filling up our gas tank. He could see our fucking life livelihood for, while we're on the road and just take it. And of course, why it's like, chill out, man, chill. Like it's going to be fine. And I will, I will say at this point that a 1969 Peter Fonda, I I would have let him ruin my life for a few years. Uh, you know, I didn't want to necessarily ask. I mean, the back of my mind, I was like, should I ask? But you then, know my type. I, I would have let that man ruin my fucking life. That's a high-ass dude. He's, He's a another high-ass. High ass. He was like 6'2". He's a high-ass gentleman. And high, like literally high. Like, Did literally. you realize that he was that high? Like, I, I watched this um, special feature where they're talking about the scene where they're... It's like Billy, Wyatt, and... Um, the Lucas Q character, I guess. Yeah. The no name stranger guy that yeah. is the commune, hippie commune guy. And they're sitting around the fire. Apparently, Peter Fonda was so high during that scene that he was like freaking the fuck out. <laughs> and I was like, cool. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I was like, that's not fake weed on set. <laughs> Nope. In several interviews, he even said, like, yeah, pot's been the constant in my life. <laughs> like, of all the things, like, pot's yeah. pretty much stayed with me. And this character, yeah. this this Lucas Q kind of no-name hitchhiker character is wild because he does live on a commune. Like, they do – eventually, you know, they kind of – you see how they kind of stop and get help when they need and get food when they need and just kind of depend on the kindness of strangers in a way that you wouldn't expect these kind of – cross-country bikers too so we see them having family or having dinner with like this family of ranchers and then mm -hmm. you know they kind of just work their way across the country like that so when they meet this hitchhiker they don't know that he lives in a commune they find that out when they drop him off mm -hmm. and there's like a mime troupe at this fucking commune and there is a little bit desolate there's these people like rolling the desert like roaming the desert kind of trying to plant seeds and you know, it's like we had a tough winter we lost a lot of people but like this is who's left kind of thing and it's just like a traditional commune in the 60s where it's like people were just trying to live in a way that made sense to them. And they, you know, meet these two women who are like, take us with you. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't know if it's because they're over this commune shit or because Peter Fonda is super fucking hot, but they're like, take us with you. Yeah. And they go swimming and they kind of, you know, just like this is part of their their life as well is like they will do unto others as they will have done unto them. So when Billy starts freaking out about wanting to leave this commune, Wyatt is like, like, chill out, man, we're eating their food. And I'm like, that is such a hippie, gentle way of approaching life. Like they're feeding us. It's fine. Even if they're having weird clandestine meetings about like weapons or something, <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're also feeding us. Um, yeah. So they drop off these two women and they kind of, they get arrested for parading without a permit because they're riding their bikes through a parade that's happening in this small town. But that's where we meet George Hansen. And George is the Jack Nicholson character and he is a lawyer with the ACLU um, who gets them out of jail and then joins them on the road to New Orleans. And he is 
fucking wild in this movie. They ask if he has a helmet and he gets his old his old football helmet. Yeah. And he is really one of these guys who like you he kind of reminds me of the kind of person who maybe because he's a lawyer, maybe because he works in civil rights, maybe because he seems to have been raised with some kind of privilege that he really doesn't think there are consequences to his actions. So even though he's in jail, he's not worried about it. Um, the way that Billy and Wyatt are worried about it. And he kind of is free in in that way. Like it makes him free, but it also makes him a little bit naive. And mm. so when they stop for the first night, you realize that George doesn't know what marijuana is because they try to get him high. Like it shows, they show him a joint and he's like, no, it's okay. I bought my own, like at the gas station, thinking it's a cigarette. But he does, he gets high for the first time and like fucking loves it. <laughs> and yeah. I don't, I haven't read the book Easy Riders Rage, Raging Bulls in a long time. Um, but I think there's some discussion of this scene in, in that movie. And this is one of the things that I think also in the past have, has, kept me from enjoying the film to the fullest or understanding the full message of the movie is like, oh, we're just watching people get high? Yay, yippee. So when you're looking at this scene, I think that this time around it was clear to me that, oh, this has to set the foundation for what they all thought this experience was going to be, what they thought this trip was going to be, where they're just meeting like-minded people in strange situations as they make their way to New Orleans. Yeah. And it's not it, since it ends up not really being that in a very disturbing way, I think you need scenes like this to not just punctuate that, like, yes, they're having fun together, but that this is kind of the world that they were pushing for. This kind of the peace they were pushing for. This is kind of the freedom that they've been pushing for is that they could just be and exist in the world and meet people and have good experiences. Yeah. Jack Nicholson has the worst Southern accent I've ever heard in this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely terrible. I mean, he tried it. And for that, thank you, sir. But it was bad. Um, <laughs> however, I think that he had like this. He has one of the best um, sequences in the film when they're talking Absolutely. about sort of the concept of you know us versus them. You know the idea of the the reason why they're outlaws in yeah. a way, or they're perceived as outlaws. You know, and that whole conversation is is great. And, uh, you know, again, and I think it's funny because I forgot that Jack Nicholson was in this movie. Oh. Like, I forgot. And then when he showed up, I was like, oh, right. Because he gives the best line of, you know, the whole, yeah. the poignant few lines. Um, well, one of them is when they, when they three of them stop at this restaurant and the girls in the restaurant are all going crazy for these hot guys that have rolled in. <laughs> and the men in the restaurant are all talking major shit about these weirdos that were just rolled in. And at one point, as they, you know, they right before they leave, George, the Jack Nicholson character, says they're going to talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But if they see a free individual, it's going to scare the shit out of them. Yeah. Like, that could not have hit me more in this day and age. Oh, <laughs> like, 100%. But he, absolute truth. Like, they're going to talk about individual freedom and what it means, but when they see a free person, a free individual, that's going to scare the shit out of them. And that scene that you're talking about, the diner scene, is terrifying to me. Like, yeah. And, I, and again, I don't know if it's because I was, like, raised in the South, but I was like, holy shit. Like, I, I am scared out of my mind for yeah. these people. Like, I'm just like, 
And, you know, it's funny because when you watch the special features, you, you know, you will hear Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda on one of them kind of talk about how they set that up. Right. And, you know, but these reactions were pretty much real. They were coming from a real place, I think, right? Absolutely. I, I don't think a lot of them were trained actors, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they were prompted to speak about the actors as if they had done a horrible crime. So they were, like, obviously supercharged. But I feel yeah. like that was some, there were some genuine feelings going on in that scene. And I was like, wow. Yeah, the ad-libbing of the genuine feelings was also terrifying. Like, oh, that's what you come up with just right off the dome? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it really, it kind of also brought to the forefront for me this notion of how do you extricate yourself from that situation? Um, it's only been once or twice in my life that I have felt like, oh, I need to leave because bad things are going to happen if I stay because I'm Black or because I'm a woman. Yeah. Um, but it's usually been pretty immediate where like I'll walk into a situation and then leave. So if you're sitting down at a restaurant and people are talking and you're watching this tension build around you, how do you get the fuck out of there? And how do you save yourself or how do you do it safely? And they're able to do it, but it's a really scary scene because you're not sure they're going to make it. And they're confronted with such bigotry and ignorance that you realize that the more that they... They have touched upon it a little bit up to this point, but the more that they continue down this road, the more they're going to experience of this. And these are guys who are saying shit like, well, they're not, I don't think they're going to make it to the parish line. Like they're plotting and scheming as they're talking about them around them. It's very terrifying. And as Mm. it turns out, there something terrible happens. Like they do get jumped when they're all sitting around, they're all sleeping um, outside. Cause you know, as we've seen in the film up to this point, nobody will give them a room. Mm. Um, so they're all sleeping outside and camping and George gets knifed essentially and beat and they kick the shit out of him and kill him. I don't know if I should ruin that or not, but I'll leave it open. Listen, this is an ancient sea scroll of a film (laughs) according to some young folks. I just made up. But it's that reaction to that savagery because, you know, Wyatt is hurt, but he's not killed but he's hurt very badly and it's the reaction Mm. to that savagery where one of the first things they think is like what do we do here oh we should send his stuff back to his family like they're still thinking in such a kind way after having experienced such abject violence that their first thought wasn't let's save ourselves and get the fuck out of here you know but they do leave eventually and get to mardi gras and it's kind of a strange arrival because they've They've experienced the highs, the highest of highs and lowest of lows. And now they're kind of, they've reached this pinnacle and they've had a new friend, someone who they thought was going to be with them for a while in their lives is gone simply because he was hanging out with these two long hair. Like they're the reason he's kind of dead is because he was in their presence. Right. Which is really upsetting because he didn't look the part, like he didn't look. He didn't have long hair. He didn't look like a hippie. He might have been a freer spirit, but he definitely... And he kept doing this thing, like, when he drank, we would go, nick, nick, nick. But, like, yeah. he just kind of, like, was a freer spirit, but he didn't look the part. So he wasn't... He he could pass culturally, so right. he wasn't in as much danger until right. he hooked up with them. So they get to New Orleans, and they remember that the hitchhiker on the commune gave them um, some acid to be split amongst four people 
Uh, so they decide to split it amongst these two women they have met, these two sex workers. Again, Tony Basil and Karen Black, amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And they decide to drop acid in a fucking graveyard in New Orleans, which I would <laughs> not recommend. I've never done that myself. But this is the trip to end all trips. There is, There are tears. There is nakedness. There is thrashing, there is sex, there is weeping, there is laughter. I mean, it is like hugging a fucking statue and crying about your mother. Like, it makes acid look like the worst decision anyone could make. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, truly. Why would anyone do this to themselves intentionally? I know. It was like, there was definitely some demons being exercised in that moment. And it's shot very, I mean, it's very psychedelic. It's a very, like, you know, uh, the film sequence is very, like, you know, artistic. And it's kind of moving through different audio moments. And, yeah, the cutting of the scene is so wild. But, yeah, it makes you feel like, don't take acid in a graveyard during Mardi Gras. Just be, like, a a bad experience for you. Can that be, if we ever release an advice book, can that be the title? <laughs> yeah. All the bad advice we learned from watching films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Write it down. But it was, it's, and it's also a, a cathartic scene because you, obviously Wyatt is, is for sure still processing the, the, what happened with George and, and, you know, the experiences that they've had with facing all of this bigotry on the road, but Billy's still trying to have a good time. And he's that's kind of his MO. Like he's very high strung, but he's always trying to have a good time. So they mm-hmm. they do make it through this this event of being high. And I will not spoil the very, very end of the movie, but I don't know, man. I just I really am always shocked by it. Yeah, me too. Always shocked by it from the first time I saw it. And they it kind of drills home this point of how violence and bigotry can pop up anywhere and it doesn't have to be as forceful or in your face to be dangerous. But there's a real moment at the end of this movie where you see the embers of the American dream and you see the embers of freedom burning. And it is just has never hit me as hard as I, as it did on this, this rewatch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There Yeah, I I just, again, I kind of have gone through the ringer with this movie, and I now I think, just as an older person, I'm starting to really appreciate what it did and its place in kind of film history, Hollywood history, but also just the messages of it. It's just so weird that it comes back again. Like, the, 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 the film becomes kind of more important now in a weird way. And now all of the, like, I mean, the last time... I saw it the very first time everybody was still alive. Like all the actors were pretty much still alive. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. Now it's just a different, a different thing. Like this movie Mm -hmm. means something different to me than it did when I first saw it. But um, one thing that I think is so wild, I never caught this. This is a first time catch for me. So there's the scene where at the beginning, what they're, they're basically at the airport and they're like right underneath the airplanes doing a drug deal. I was like, who the fuck is that little man? Ooh, is girl. that Roman Polanski? And girl. then I realized it wasn't Roman Polanski. It was Phil Spector. Born a creep. And I was, I was like, damn, Phil Spector's in this fucking movie? 
Phil Spector pre-terrorizing Ronnie, pre-terrorizing and murdering someone straight up. Yeah. Pre-weird car accident. Like, he was just born a creep. Yeah. Just a a strange little footnote that he... And I I was like, I guess I get him and Roman. They're both, like, little hippie dudes. (laughs) Little mousy hippie guys. Both who have committed... It's astounding human atrocities. <laughs> You're right, exactly. But yeah, no, it's um, it's a it's a it's a good movie. And I will say too, if you're like on the fence, like if you've never seen it and you're like, uh, okay, boomer, no, I won't watch that movie. Watch it. I think it is surprisingly, like, it moves past that hype. And again, maybe it's just because of me now. But for me, I think it moves past the hype. It moves past the fucking born-to-be-wildness of it and is a great film. Great American film. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Yeah, it was weird, yeah. It was weird for me to pick it, but it, but it was such the quintessential yeah. road trip movie that I felt like I had, like I, I wanted to. Like I didn't want to, I couldn't see this fitting in better in any other theme. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's worth give, it's worth giving it a shot for all the reasons that Millie just laid out, and also just it's 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 the high ass Peter Fonda at his best. Um, so you're so you're saying in the in the the theme question, you would choose ass and ass not gas all or grass. Day I can <laughs> yeah. get my own grass. I can get my own gas. <laughs> I cannot get my own high ass. Get that Peter Peter Fonda ass. And you'll be good. I'm apologizing to any of his grandchildren that could be listening or (laughs) any of the... Jane is going to be alive forever. Knock on wood. Sorry, Jane, you can't listen to this episode. Sorry for your sister listening, but I would have uh, destroyed his dick. Destroyed (laughs) his dick. Destroyed his dick. Like a true nature's child. I was born to destroy his dick. <laughs> I'm loopy. I don't even know what I'm doing at this point. Am I still talking? Good God. Oh, my God. Listen, this was so much fun. I'm so glad we did this episode. <laughs> um, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did put at gmail.com. Send us questions for bonus episodes, of course. We also have a P.O. box, too. If you want to send us handwritten letters, it is on the link tree on our social media. And we are getting such great voicemails from you all. Thank you so much. Please keep sending them. We will play them on the show. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Make it 60 seconds or less and please record it in a quiet space. That's right. Find us on socials. I saw pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. And we have merch. Go to the exactly right shop to find our things. And we have bonus episodes, too. We have a new bonus episode dropping on the main feed every third Thursday of the month, which I believe is this week. Uh, Plus, we have old bonus episodes trickling out onto the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. All right. I just started laughing because I looked at the name of next week's episode. (laughs) Ah! Do you want to give them the (laughs) movies? (laughs) Ah! I absolutely do, and I can't believe we set ourselves up for this double feature, but here we are, because our movies next week are Seven from 1995 and 
finally, No Country for Old Men from 2007. Listen, I could not be more excited to rewatch Seven. I have not (laughs) seen that shit since I was in the Seven Deadly Monkeys, I think. (laughs) And I am so excited. Oh my God, I cannot wait for next week. You know I love a Seven Deadly Monkeys callback. (laughs) For that alone, I'm excited for the movies next week. (laughs) God, speaking of high school, well... Ah. As always, Danielle, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast. I loved it. I loved it. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.